Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The COVID-19 pandemic is a reminder that nature acts globally even when people do not. At a time when the entire world could react in unity to deal with this catastrophe, the United States has chosen not to cooperate with international organizations designed to help and cannot even act cohesively on a national level. Jeffrey Sachs, university professor and director of the Center for Sustainable Development at Columbia University, has been studying the complexities of global action, inaction, and reaction over four decades, and he's examined the long history of globalization and its trajectory in his latest book, The Ages of Globalization, Geography, Technology, and Institutions. It's published by Columbia University Press, and I'm very pleased that it brings Jeffrey Sachs to our show now. Hello. Hey, thank you very much, Leonard. Good to be with you. You're right Even that COVID it's a difficult times. <laughs> That's for yes. sure. Uh, well, we'll try to talk mostly about what's in your book and not about what's happening at the moment, but uh, it's all interrelated. You write that COVID-19 is, quote, the kind of phenomenon of globalization that has been part of human experience from the very start of our species. Uh, and obviously it's been aided by the, the ease of world travel today. Uh, you also cite what happened some years earlier with HIV AIDS. How um, was globalization a factor 200,000 or 300,000 years ago when our species first evolved? Well, uh, when our species uh, first evolved, we were uh, in Africa uh, and on the savanna. Uh, our uh, modern experience of globalization uh, really dates from around 70,000 years ago, best guess, when uh, the out-migrations from Africa of anatomically modern human beings uh, set off for the whole world uh, and within uh, some tens of thousands of years inhabited uh, all parts of the world, bringing with them uh, all sorts of things, uh, human nature, uh, the spread of pathogens, uh, the beginnings of uh, long-distance uh, trade and communication. Uh, the story of uh, global pandemics is something newer because that actually requires a movement over long distances and rather short periods of time. But I do think it is stunning uh, to think about uh, perhaps the most famous episode of uh, pandemic, the Black Death. Uh, it also originated in China, in Western China, and spread to Europe. Uh, it took uh, apparently 16 years to spread from China to Italy, uh, from 1331 to 1347. This virus took a few hours uh, from uh, Wuhan to Rome uh, on a flight that ended up being uh, uh, the uh, early stage of uh, worldwide transmission within weeks. So things accelerate, this is for sure. Well, obviously we have air travel, but they had horses. I would have thought that would have uh, sped it up a bit. Uh, apparently it came uh, by ship uh, in the Indian Ocean, uh, eventually uh, through the Mediterranean, uh, reaching uh, European ports. Uh, and indeed uh, the quarantine, the 40 days uh, of uh, isolation was uh, ships being held away from ports when those ships were uh, feared to be carrying plague. Uh, but it took time. Uh, things uh, did uh, move, but they moved uh, more slowly uh, in 
in that case, as far as we know, uh, the earliest known outbreaks of uh, Black Death seem to be the early 1330s uh, in uh, Central Asia and Western China. Uh, the first known uh, outbreak of uh, Black Death in Europe, uh, as I say, was 16 years later. So uh, we really do get a sense of uh, the, the different uh, pace of uh, our time and earlier times. Going back when, to at, the beginning. Yeah, I was just going to uh, note that it's also interesting to think about AIDS, a very different uh, uh, pandemic. Uh, but when you reconstruct the uh, biological clock of the HIV virus, the hu uh, human immunodeficiency virus, best guess is that it entered the human population uh, probably from a mutation from uh, what's called the simian uh, immunodeficiency virus, a grade eight virus, uh, probably in a bushmeat market or uh, some such circumstance, but probably around the 1920s uh, is the best guess of the virologists. Wow, but uh, AIDS was only identified, and not in Africa, but in San Francisco in 1981. So. We had even decades of clearly a disease that was spreading widely in Africa, but was not picked up as a new disease uh, until uh, it hit uh, the U.S. and uh, some doctors in the U.S. identified it as something different. And then a couple of years after first identifying this new syndrome, uh, the virus itself was isolated. Going back to the beginning, scientists disagree on when language evolved. Could we have globalization without language? We definitely had very long distance movements of uh, hominids, uh, of early humans, not anatomically modern humans, uh, that go back hundreds of thousands of years. And uh, these uh, uh, relatives of ours were uh, pretty clever in a lot of ways. Uh, and of course, uh, they used fire strategically. They were clearing land areas. They were hunting successfully. But they are not our direct ancestors. Our direct ancestors, almost surely, the Homo sapiens sapiens, our species, uh, came in a new migration starting around 70,000 years ago. And best guess, although uh, obviously we have no uh, definitive uh, history of it is that language probably emerged sometime around 50,000 years ago. Uh, there is a lot of evidence of a massive acceleration of culture uh, around 50,000 years ago uh, in many different kinds of traits in tool making, uh, in arts, uh, in settlements, uh, in uh, the battle between our species and uh, our closest uh, now extinct relative that uh, modern humans drove to extinction, the Neanderthals. Uh, and that uh, took place sometime uh, probably uh, around 40,000 to 30,000 years ago. And language, it's presumed, it's guessed, played uh, a major role in that accelerated sociality uh, and uh, the ability to form sophisticated uh, strategies, uh, sophisticated communities. No doubt, all through uh, every stage of globalization that I uh, document, 
breakthroughs in communication, starting with modern human language itself, uh, and then the ability to write down language, then the ability to print language, then the ability to broadcast language, then the ability <laughs> to put it into uh, digital bits. <laughs> Each one of these has been central to uh, the, the cha fundamental changes of how we live and who we are. And you identify seven ages of globalization from the Paleolithic starting over 70 years ago, as you said earlier, 70, to uh, 70,000 years ago. Yep. No, uh, so I, I would guess from what you're saying around 72,000 years ago um, <laughs> to the digital, uh, our, the digital uh, stage in this century. Can you summarize them or would that be too much for the limited time we have? Uh, here. Uh, I know that they're the Paleolithic, uh, then there is the Neolithic, then there's the Equestrian, the Classical, the Ocean, the Industrial Age, and now the, the Digital Age. Is well, that it? Uh, that, you got it, uh, Leonard. And uh, I read your book. <laughs> it, it, thank you. And it, it helps me to think about history to make this staging. Of course, uh, any historian or person looking back uh, would uh, probably divide things up a little bit more differently. I'm an economist, so I look at the material world and how we produce things, uh, how we uh, live together and so forth. But the theme uh, of the book is the interconnection of ideas, technology, and nature, always being the critical uh, triangle uh, of interaction. And I divide the world into these seven stages uh, to express the following basic idea that the, the Neolithic stage or uh, before agriculture uh, is uh, the, the uh, I'm sorry, the Paleolithic uh, stage uh, is, is the migration when human beings uh, settled the world. Uh, and best guess, as I've said, Sometime more recently than 100,000 years ago, probably the Great Dispersal being around 70,000 years ago and continuing to cover almost all of the planet, but really an end of an age ending with the end of the Ice Age, uh, which uh, ushered in a new fundamental era of humanity, agriculture. It was the retreat of the glaciers, uh, the warming of the overall climate that uh, led to the changes of uh, agricultural possibility, in fact. Uh, we find that as the Ice Age receded and our new geologic period, the Holocene, took hold simultaneously uh, overlaps of uh, uh, periods in several places around the world, uh, human communities discovered how to cultivate food rather than simply how to hunt and gather the food. And Although of course, are, that was fundamental. There are hunter-gatherers hunter today. So uh, are they still living in a Paleolithic kind of time? In, indeed, there are uh, some, uh, a few non-contacted tribes, so-called, uh, and there are hunter-gatherers who do have some contacts in places like uh, the Kalahari Desert uh, in modern-day Botswana. Uh, but the fact is that uh, all of humanity was engaged in hunting and gathering or foraging for daily survival up until agriculture, and now it is the tiniest fraction 
uh, of humanity that still keeps uh, that uh, very small uh, niche uh, alive because what agriculture did fundamentally was enable a, a massive increase of food production in uh, a particular area and thereby a massive increase of population and thereby uh, not only the development of villages and towns and eventually cities, but of armies and of power and of hierarchy. And uh, those ended up pushing the rest of humanity into the very tiny niches of the deep rainforest or uh, the middle of the deserts uh, or the few other areas where today's remaining hunter and gathering societies live. So agriculture was obviously uh, the breakthrough, literally, to uh, uh, civilization in terms of settlement uh, and uh, civicus, uh, a civil society in what became our cities. Then I, I break it up uh, towards the end of uh, the uh, uh, period from 10,000 to the modern era, sometime around 3,000 BC uh, or 5,000 years ago, when uh, humanity took a great step forward, some Henry Ford of his age uh, or her age uh, discovered how to uh, domesticate uh, horses and other uh, animals, uh, donkeys and uh, camels uh, that could provide transportation. This was, of course, also a fundamental change in how society could be organized, how uh, trade could take place over long distances over land, something basically impossible without uh, a fast animal transport service uh, at one's disposal, on the extent of political uh, uh, power over a geographic space, uh, which the horse enabled. Uh, also, huge increases of agricultural potential because of animal traction uh, and the horse in particular as a major uh, part of uh, raising agricultural productivity. Well, what we see with the domestication of the horse is the rise of uh, the proto-empires, uh, the first uh, imperial states like Babylonia and uh, Sumeria. Uh, in uh, the Mesopotamia region, modern-day uh, Iraq, uh, between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And I argue, uh, of course, based on uh, the vast and deep scholarship of uh, so many uh, great uh, thinkers uh, uh, that I rely on, that the advent of uh, the horse and domestication of the horse fundamentally trans. Uh, 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 transformed politics, but in a very important uh, point, was not available in our part of the world, uh, in the Western Hemisphere. The horse, alas, had been driven to extinction uh, by the uh, human arrivals uh, that came at the end of uh, the Ice Age, uh, and they hunted the horse for food uh, to extinction and uh, ended up walking for the next 10,000 years. Well, uh, actually, so the horses went over the land bridge, uh, as I understand it, into Asia, uh, the same way that humans came from Asia into the Americas. So Asians wound up 
uh, domesticating the horses rather than seeing them as, as a source of food? Well, uh, actually, uh, no doubt horses were hunted for food in Asia as well, and it's most likely the case that the remaining wild horses that ended up being domesticated were in the great grassland regions of uh, what we now call the Transcaucasus uh, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the Black Sea uh, or Pontic uh, region. And it is probably from that Central Asian <coughs> survival zone, dry, uh, interior, uh, low population density grasslands uh, that could feed the wild horses that domestication first occurred. And probably it is from those steppe or grassland uh, societies uh, that domesticated the horse first that uh, the horse was brought both to East Asia and to uh, Western Europe. And we know in Western Europe that there is uh, definitely both uh, in terms of uh, linguistic evolution of Indo-European languages and genetic traits, uh, a clear migration from Central Asia around this period and cultural artifacts uh, in how pottery uh, is made and the arts uh, that are used that suggest this uh, major infusion uh, and intrusion of uh, peoples from Central Asia into Europe on horseback in essence, uh, sometime around 3000 BC. And uh, definitely the horse uh, finds uh, uh, this fundamental place uh, in uh, human society uh, and gives rise to uh, the first city-state empires. And by the end of uh, this third period of uh, my dating, uh, we now have the beginnings of large-scale empires uh, Neo uh, uh, Babylonia, Neo Samaria, uh, Neo Assyria uh, start reaching a scale that stretches from modern day uh, Iraq uh, all the way down the Nile Valley in Egypt. And this is the first major uh, large scale empire. Uh, and it becomes, uh, in a way, the prototype for the empires that follow in what I call the fourth age of globalization, which is the, the true uh, classic age of empires that we know from the Roman Empire, the Han Empire, the Mauryan Empire uh, in uh, um, uh, modern day India, uh, the uh, Parthian Empire in uh, modern day Iran. Uh, the great classic empires emerged sometime after 1000 uh, BC and really uh, dominate and compete for power, uh, but also engage in tremendous exchange of ideas, people, trade, uh, materials uh, for a period of uh, about 2,500 years in my dating from their emergence as large empires uh, until a next phase uh, is reached around 1500 AD. So a long to, stage of this classic uh, age. I have to announce uh, that my guest is Jeffrey D. Sachs. His latest book, The Ages, Ages of Globalization, Geography, Technology, and Institutions. You're listening to WBAI 
New York, 99.5 FM. If we can back up for a moment, those people from uh, from Asia, the uh, who later um, I who conquered so many different places, they went. Um, I, I weren't they the what uh, came to be known as Aryans and uh, among some people. Uh, that's how Iran winds up being called Iran. India uh, gets conquered by them. Greece, uh, the uh, Italy gets conquered by them. Uh, and they bring uh, a similar kind of a language, don't they? Would, did that make uh, globalization a little easier? Uh, what I learned as I was catching up uh, in uh, writing uh, this book, because, of course, I relied on uh, the uh, great expertise of uh, the uh, archaeologists, the linguists, uh, the uh, population geneticists, that are tracing this is how confused uh, and still debated uh, much of this history is. But there does seem, for example, in the Indian subcontinent to be, as has been surmised from the great Indian classics of uh, uh, 3,000 years ago, there does seem to have been this invasion from the north, uh, which- uh, The Brahmins. Population mixing, uh, indeed, and uh, a- genetic uh, differentiation between uh, populations uh, generally in the north and in the south. And so uh, a lot of the legends, of course, not surprisingly, have their uh, mark and, and record also uh, in uh, now what we can find in the genetic code. But this work on uh, human genetics to uh, try to decipher these population movements is pretty new uh, because it depends on absolutely the latest uh, in uh, genomic sequencing, and there still is a lot of controversy and uh, a lot of complication because people have moved in <laughs> lots of different directions. So I, I would suffice it to say that, uh, yes, uh, Central Asian populations did uh, move, in, and they may be uh, indeed, uh, as you say, uh, the... Uh, people that uh, one records uh, in the early histories uh, or in the mythologies, the, the founding stories of uh, in India, uh, in uh, Persia, and so on. But I think we're going to continue to learn a lot about that in the years ahead as well. And it's absolutely fascinating to me how the genetics and the linguistics and the archaeology uh, mm are enabling a, a reconstruction of these movements and events that were seemingly lost forever uh, in uh, time, but actually left records that now can be deciphered, although with all the complexities and detail and continuing controversy about them. Now, you write in uh, that globalization enables one part of the world to learn from others, but hasn't it been a bit confused in the way we've been dealing with COVID-19 around the world? <laughs> That's a good, uh, very good question. Uh, I think uh, the uh, main uh, theme of uh, a large stretch of human history is a kind of transmission belt of knowledge uh, in uh, two directions, east to west, west to east. I point out that uh, a very high concentration of human population, the earliest cities, 
uh, the earliest empires, uh, lie along a band of the old world, uh, that is uh, the uh, European, Asian, African world, uh, in the northern hemisphere from around uh, 20 degrees north latitude to around 45 degrees north latitude. And many historians uh, have noted that uh, that band of uh, the Earth's uh, uh, geography has been remarkably productive uh, in technological innovation, uh, has been the site of uh, much history and has been heavily populated with uh, much uh, denser uh, populations than further north, where it's colder and shorter growing seasons, and uh, further south uh, towards the equator, uh, where uh, life is also extremely difficult, in part because of heavy disease burdens in the, uh, in, in the core equatorial tropical regions. What impresses me about this lucky latitudes uh, that stretch from uh, the Iberian Peninsula, from today's uh, Portugal and Spain on the Atlantic Ocean, uh, across uh, <clears throat> Europe, uh, across uh, uh, the Middle East, uh, we would say now Central Asia uh, and into East Asia and ending up in the Pacific, is that there has been uh, trade and movements of technology and learning in both directions with different ages having really different dominant uh, uh, directions of technological change in certain periods of time. China was uh, clearly the progenitor of fundamental technological breakthroughs, as people know, of paper and paper making, paper currency, <coughs> the compass, uh, uh, gunpowder, uh, possibly the printing press or movable type, uh, many, many absolutely fundamental technologies. And from around 500 AD to 1500 AD, the main technological changes were going from east to a very rude <coughs> and uh, technologically laggard west, uh, Western Europe, which was then just an appendage uh, and what was called the Dark Ages between the fall of uh, the Western Roman Empire and uh, the Renaissance period. From 1500 onward, uh, and progressively until the last 25 or maybe 50 years, the vast bulk of technological flow has gone from West to East. Uh, the Western world or I think accurately, the North Atlantic world of today's U.S. and Canada on uh, the uh, New World side and Western Europe on the Old World side became by far the technological leaders, uh, the uh, place of the modern scientific revolution and the place of modern industrial technology. And uh, countries in Asia either caught up or fell victim uh, to conquest by European imperial powers <coughs> or abuses and so forth. And uh, what is changing now and unsettling a lot of people, but I don't find it unsettling particularly, uh, but certainly many of our foreign policy thinkers and strategists and politicians and public do, 
is that uh, clearly East Asia is becoming once again not just a receiver of technology but a creator of technology and doing a lot of things very, very well. And we're going to be learning from Asia if we're smart. Uh, and seems uh, to be causing that, some tension, but and uh, it caused a lot of tension. But I think it's a it's a it's nice to be able to learn from others too, uh, not just to, to be uh, uh, insisting uh, that uh, one knows best in everything, but having the benefit of uh, learning and advances from elsewhere. And when it comes to COVID nineteen, the fact of the matter is, uh, of course, the virus emerged in China. Uh, but that's quite different from uh, another important fact, and that is that it was China and other countries of the Asia-Pacific that uh, really have uh, conquered this pandemic first and did better than we did and that Europe did in bringing it under control. And I want us to learn from that urgently, because if we don't, we're going to lose a lot more lives. Well, I wonder about hostility toward uh, globalization. Uh, globalization was hotly debated in the 1980s and 90s, despite the fact that uh, the world, the national economies were becoming increasingly connected uh, in a global marketplace during that time. Uh, more recently, uh, the, the president has called the uh, COVID-19 the Chinese virus. So are we, uh, is there, has there been a constant uh, negative undertone uh, in relationship to the to globalization? Interdependence has uh, two sides to it. It has a, uh, a positive, extremely crucial side, uh, and that is when you have uh, two regions or many regions uh, that are uh, interdependent through trade or through ideas or through tourism or through uh, other kinds of exchange, you can benefit from that, the gains from trade. Uh, you can have specialization. You can have innovations in one place that spread to other places. You can enjoy diversity. Uh, you can enjoy uh, foods and culture uh, and uh, <coughs> other things that uh, uh, enrich our lives. That's the positive side. And it's a very powerful positive side. The negative side is, of course, that the other, uh, that interdependent other, can uh, arrive uh, on as cavalry uh, for conquest, can bring pathogens. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, can uh, I blame create, the Chinese for that? Uh, cr create chaos and all the rest. Uh, and uh, one of the most poignant. Uh, remarks that I know of in the economics uh, canon, uh, and which I include in the book, is a statement by Adam Smith, who is the founder of modern economics, uh, modern meaning uh, uh, that the wealth of nations was written in 1776, and it became the uh, founding text of modern economic thinking, of market-based economic thinking. Smith was the great champion of globalization. Uh, Smith said that global trade uh, enables uh, different parts of the world to help other parts of the world to meet their needs and their wants uh, and uh, uh, to uh, thereby raise well-being all around. And he wrote this 
phenomenally foundational text about specialization and gains from trade. It's an absolutely brilliant intellectual achievement. But Although, didn't he get that, some things wrong? He, he felt it really began with Columbus and Vasco da Gamba, uh, and it, it began, began much earlier. Uh, there were, as you have pointed out, it, it probably began somewhere around the year 1000 or so. Well, what he does say, and I uh, love this uh, particular passage, he says that uh, the uh, voyages of discovery uh, from uh, Europe to the Americas, uh, Columbus's voyages, and the voyages of Vasco da Gama from Europe to Asia, he calls the two most significant events in the history of mankind because he says that they united the entire world. Well, the world had been briefly united uh, in, uh, in a sense uh, that uh, there was a global reach up until the end of the old ice age, because with the end of the ice age and the rising ocean levels, uh, the Americas really were cut off from the old world. Uh, if there was any uh, migration at all, and there may have been uh, the arrival of uh, uh, of uh, the Vikings uh, to Newfoundland uh, briefly, it was a very, uh, very uh, uh, singular uh, and limited episode. But what Smith was writing about was really the creation of the interconnected full uh, world. And uh, but he points out, and I think it's very poignant, uh, and also I always thought it reflected his great humanism. Uh, he says this is a potentially glorious event uh, because now this interconnected world can uh, help uh, uh, to uh, raise well-being all around. But he said in the specific instance, just uh, by fate, he says, it happened that the old world uh, was so much more powerful, and the Europeans in particular were so much more powerful than the native inhabitants of the West Indies, uh, the Caribbean and uh, the Americas, and the East Indies, uh, the Indian Ocean uh, countries and islands, that uh, Europe uh, plundered those societies uh, and uh, uh, actually uh, destroyed them. Uh, and the native inhabitants, uh, Smith writes, uh, were reduced to uh, mass suffering from an event that should have been a mutually beneficial event. Well, it, we, it, for me, we have, it, to, it we have to stop for a moment. I'm, I'm sorry, Professor Sachs. We have to stop for a moment. But we'll return to this, okay? Wonderful. I have to take care of some other business. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Jeffrey Sachs, I'd like to take a few minutes to ask you to consider contributing to WBAI to help us weather the storm of financial problems that this pandemic has brought upon the station. We, we need all of our listeners to step up right now and go to our website, give2wbai.org. That's given then the number 2wbai.org, or, or to call 516-620-3602. 
to help keep this show and, and this station on the air. Again, the number 516-620-3602. The website is give to wbai.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out your own financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of it your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station or what we call a BAI buddy. Now, now BAI buddies are the backbone of our financial support here because it allows us to plan for the future, but we have lost a good number of them to the financial upheaval that the coronavirus has brought. So please, if you can, consider signing up as a BAI buddy to replace other listeners who've had to suspend their membership due to financial hardships. Joining me now uh, to explain a little bit more is my executive producer, Jesse Lent. And he, Jesse, you want to talk about a special virtual event that listeners can attend if they sign up to become buddies in the name of the show? Yes. Hello, Leonard. Hello, everyone. And apologies to any of our regular listeners who have heard this previously. But yes, as a first-time ever offer in the career, the broadcasting career of Leonard Lopate, we are offering what we're calling a dinner, my dinner with Leonard. My dinner with Leonard is a teleconference with you, Leonard Lopate, and nine other listeners. Uh, you can ask him anything you'd like. You can tell him about the role that uh, the show has played for you over the years. Everyone will get a chance to speak and to speak to Leonard directly. And they can the compare only... notes among themselves. Uh, now, this exactly. is the second one. Now, Jesse, this is the second one. We've already filled one. and We've because sold out they... the first one. Mm -hmm. And because more people wanted uh, to participate, we have created a second one. And that's what we're talking about right now. It's just a great way. I think Leonard and I are both excited about this idea. Uh, we we gather. It's it's. I think that um, being able to connect with listeners like this, it, it's going to make it a really unique experience. Sure, it's kind of globalization. We've done, we've done live events in the past where you know a, a bunch of listeners got to got to obviously meet you. That's something that you've done over the years. But there's something a little bit more. Uh, intimate, dare I say, a little bit more personal about being one on, well, shall we say nine on one, you know, but but also directly uh, co connected on your computer screen with Leonard. Uh, he'll be looking at you, you'll be looking at him, and you can, like we said, ask him, ask him about anything. But the only way to be invited to this, and you will be invited, is if you become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. As Leonard mentioned, uh, we've had a lot of BAI buddies drop out uh, because of financial hardship, which is something we can all relate to. As we've been saying, the station WBAI itself is experiencing a lot of financial hardship because of the pandemic. So we would never want to put anyone in a precarious situation. But if you've enjoyed this show over the years, Right now is the time to step up and support another listener who might not be able to do so because of this situation. Uh, so the way to do that is by calling 516-620-3602. Again, the number is 516-620-3602. 
516-620-3602, or you can go to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give, then the number two, WBAI.org. You know, you can ask Leonard about anything throughout his 43-year-long broadcasting career, what it was like to be broadcasting on 9-11 or the day of the election of Barack Obama. Uh, you know, I know that right now certainly feels like we are in the moment uh, of a very historically significant time. Leonard has been through other historically significant moments or just historically significant in the history of this station. You know, you Leonard, you were broadcasting on BAI in the heady days of, of the late 70s with Steve Post and, and, and Bob Fass and all those guys walking around. Uh, you know, w- what was that like? I'm not going to answer now because I want to get back to Jeffrey Sachs, but that's something that we can definitely discuss when we have uh, that uh, that dinner with Leonard. So um, let me get back to Jeffrey Sachs, okay? And uh, of course, I hope that people give the number one more time. The number is 516-620-3602, or you can go to the website, give to WBAI.org, uh, and become a BAI buddy that's a sustaining member of the station for a contribution of $10 or more a month. Everyone who signs up in the name of Leonard Lopate at large will be invited to my Dinner with Leonard, a teleconference with you and nine other listeners where you can ask Leonard uh, questions like the one I just posed to him. You can hear the answer to that question or whatever other question you would like. And, of course, from all of us at the station, thank you so much for your support. And we're back to Jeffrey D. Sachs, his latest book, The Ages of Globalization, Geography, Technology and Institutions, published by Public Uni- uh, Columbia University Press. Um, I-, I mentioned uh, before that uh, globalization has uh, has uh, been debated, the positives and the negatives over the years. Uh, some of the negatives, uh, it seems to me, is corporations can now transfer more jobs abroad, offshore revenues. Uh, they can offshore the revenues uh, so they can lower their taxes. Wealthy individuals can move their legal residences, have some players in the globalization game gained an advantage over others, or has it always been thus? Well, I was uh, saying uh, before uh, the break, Leonard, that it, it seems it's always been thus, uh, at least for the last 500 years, uh, because uh, globalization has brought the good and the bad. Uh, and the key, and I think it is the basic strategic idea of the book, if I may put it that way, is that globalization brings so much good, you don't uh, try to stop it, you try to correct the bad. And the things that you're talking about, uh, the offshoring uh, or uh, loss of jobs to foreign competition and so forth, are quite real. But the right way to handle them is actually uh, not by stopping trade and all its fundamental benefits, but by addressing the inequalities of income and power head on so that they don't get out of hand. And it is a truism in our world today that different countries do this differently. The United States uh, really has not taken care of those in need for quite a long time. I'd put it uh, at least 40 years. Globalization proceeded. There were big shifts in income distribution towards the rich who gained Uh, disproportionately from globalization. Uh, A lot of uh, 
workers uh, got hurt uh, and uh, suffered even declines of living standards. And the normal answer to that, I think it's the right answer, would have been to redistribute income and wealth uh, from the rich to those in need so that everybody was getting ahead. Uh, and uh, politically, there's a name for that philosophy, which I happen to subscribe to, social democracy. Uh, it is what the very open economies of Northern Europe do, for example. Uh, they make sure that all the workers are seeing rising uh, incomes uh, from what is an overall rise of income. In the United States, we've had a rise of income, but it hasn't been shared. It's been a huge rise for a few and a uh, decline for many without any uh, rectification of that widening income inequality. So that did give uh, rise to anti-globalization sentiments. But to my view, uh, it's not the right approach. But uh, not just, just on the left. In a speech before the UN General Assembly in 2018, President Trump said, quote, we reject globalism and embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Uh, he was using globalism, I guess, a synonym for globalization. But he's also frequently declared that America first is a nationalist ethos compatible with globalization. Well, uh, this takes us into another topic, which is Trump, uh, who... Well, that, well, this is what globalization is all about today. Uh, because I, I, uh, regard, I, I regard Trump as uh, the most uh, disordered thinker and the most uh, incompetent and dangerous president that we've had in our history. And no doubt he does subscribe to uh, an anti-globalization view. It doesn't make it right. It just makes it dangerous in my mind. Indeed, what Trump is trying to do right now, and unfortunately, in this case, he has some uh, bipartisan support, is to try to create new antagonism with China, for example, even a new Cold War with China, uh, to uh, try to, quote, contain China. I find it a brutally stupid idea, I have to say, because I don't think that the United States, <laughs> with our 4% of the world population, uh, really is in any position to contain uh, China with its 20% of the world population, even if we wanted to try to do that. But I find the whole idea of trying to do that malevolent, not clever, uh, and the idea that the U.S. has benefited only when others fail sufficiently uh, that the U.S. is dominant uh, is, to my mind, a misguided and cruel idea that is doomed to get us into conflict. So I was actually at the General Assembly when he made that speech. Uh, I found it horrifying, <laughs> and I still do today. I, but I find almost everything that he does horrifying. Well, he's, he's attacked numerous international organizations, the WHO, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the iran nuclear <laughs> deal, the Paris Climate Agreement, and in recent days, the ICC. Can the institutions of globalization be totally destroyed or, or weakened, as in the case of the WHO? Uh, what might happen if the WHO is weakened? Would something else come along, or um, have, do we, we have any precedents in the past? We absolutely do. We have a, a, a century of precedents. We've been through this before. Uh, World War One was a of course, an unbelievable uh, 
act of uh, mass destruction and self-destruction, and it was followed by an attempt, a feeble attempt, to rebuild uh, some kind of international system or agreement uh, founded on the League of Nations, which was the idea of uh, President Woodrow Wilson. Mm -hmm. But uh, then, famously, uh, Wilson, uh, who had a stroke uh, when he came back to sell the proposition to the American people, uh, failed to uh, prevail in the Senate. The United States never joined the League of Nations. It was stillborn uh, from the point of view of the uh, largest economy in the world not participating at that point. Uh, and uh, many other things went terribly wrong after World War One, but mainly, I would say, uh, just an orgy of short-sightedness on many different sides, uh, with many social critics at the time warning about that short-sightedness. So we, led, had a, uh, we had a worldwide depression, and then it, we wound and, up and, with, and with a world war, another world war. And, and, and it's extremely uh, pertinent to say that the world depression was itself uh, a result in part of the utter collapse of cooperation on many fronts, on the financial front, uh, and then on the U.S. imposing new huge tariffs uh, in 1931 and making terrible mistakes that led to a downward spiral. Uh, of course, uh, the German crisis uh, brought Hitler to power, and uh, we ended up in uh, the Second World War and the Holocaust. And uh, we should understand, we've been through the uh, attempt to cl close globalization. Uh, it was a disaster. Then, after World War II, uh, we did have a, a globalization, but it was also a dangerous kind because it included within it uh, this uh, nuclear arms race with the Soviet Union. And that almost brought us to self-annihilation on several instances, uh, the closest call uh, being the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962, but there were several others as well. So. If we remember the history just of our past century, it doesn't have to be all 70,000 years, although I'd like people to learn that also. But if we remember the history of the past 100 years, we would take much more care than this, uh, what I regard as a vulgarity of uh, America first being an America led by a president who would cut off funding for the World Health Organization at the height of the biggest pandemic in 100 years. It's almost unimaginable, but it, it is happening. Uh, but again, my feeling is that that style of populist, anti-globalist leadership, if I could use that misguided term in this uh, context, has brought us uh, more than 100,000 deaths from an epidemic that is controllable, uh, has brought us a great depression levels of unemployment, uh, is bringing us a geopolitical crisis, and now is bringing us uh, a massive social crisis uh, in America because of the heartlessness of Trump's response to uh, the crimes of racism that we've seen before our own eyes. Now, we have just moments left. We're pretty much out of time, but I want to ask you about this. There's been a, a lot of concern about the influence of a handful of leaders, Trump, Putin, Bolsonaro, Erdogan, Boris Johnson, 
Uh, historians nowadays tend to resist great leader explanations, but can one person have a critical influence on global, global trends? Can we collectively choose to alter the course of globalization? And how much uh, is, is globalization a force that's out of, of our control? Of, of course, uh, deep movements of technology, of population, of pathogens, uh, definitely constrain and shape uh, our world. But individuals make a huge difference in times of instability. And sometimes that huge difference is absolutely devastating. Uh, and uh, one doesn't even have to think of the Hitlers uh, and the Stalins and the Maos for that. Uh, there are uh, lesser evils that create their own uh, terrible outcomes. Mm -hmm. Well, now and we have Brexit good, and things like that. And, and good leaders can uh, absolutely uh, help to save their nations and point a world in uh, the right direction. And I, I regard uh, the greatest president of American history as Franklin Roosevelt, who uh, saw us through the Great Depression, World War II, and uh, with the idea of the United Nations uh, and uh, a way to a sustained peace after World War II. And so, uh, without question, in my mind, Roosevelt made a phenomenal difference in holding our country together. So, yes, leadership matters a lot, Leonard, uh, and individuals do absolutely have a huge impact on history. Jeffrey D. Sachs' latest book, The Ages of Globalization, Geography, Technology, and Institutions, from Columbia University Press. I'm sorry we didn't have more time, but thank you so much for all of your interesting insights. Well, thank you. What a pleasure to be with you. And uh, thanks for all that you do. I really appreciate it. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Hugh Sansom, who, who prepared this segment. If you're just discovering this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. You can also visit our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you'll find links to all of our past shows. And, and if you would like to comment on this or any of our past shows, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. As I mentioned earlier, WBAI finds itself in a very different, difficult financial position because of the pandemic. Uh, so if you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., please go right now to our website, give to WBAI.org, or call at 516-620-3602. Help keep this station alive. We're off the air next week, but we'll return on Monday, June 15th, and we'll be resuming our normal schedule uh, then coming to you every weekday from 1 to 2 p.m. I hope to see you then.